There are many ways of looking at Titanic. For example, it was the first film to earn a billion dollars at the box office. Or you could consider how James Cameron wove its tragic love story so smoothly into the grand tapestry of a disaster movie. Or if you're so inclined, recall the number of couples who foolishly chose the film's theme song for their wedding. But for this podcast, I propose Titanic as a symbol for many of Hollywood's virtues and vices. Just like the great ship, Cameron's film was such an enormous undertaking that its ambition appeared to spell its own downfall even before it was released into theatres. But unlike that doomed ship, the film's strong direction and groundbreaking technology ensured that it dodged its own iceberg and it now serves for many people in Hollywood as a shining example of big investment versus bigger reward. Which is somewhat ironic when you consider that one of Cameron's motivations to tell the story was to use the maiden voyage as a metaphor for human arrogance and greed. So here were these guys making, making decisions, playing with, with the lives of, of the people in their, in their trust, you know, very much in the same way that, that uh, let's say, an airline company has to make decisions about you know, maintenance schedules and parts replacement. And they are taking responsibility for the people on their aircraft, and yet profit is, profit is the other side of that equation. You know, there's so much of that in our lives in a, in a, in a technological world where we put our, our lives in, in, uh, in, in the care of other people. The Cunard line and the White Star line were like the Coke and Pepsi of their time, and they were constantly trying to one-up each other. And it translated into dollars, it translated into bottom-line business, very much the sort of, you know, corporate motivations that we might have right now today in 97 and will continue to have endlessly as long as people are still people. Remember, when the great ship was launched, it was considered to be unsinkable. Likewise, James Cameron was coming off an unbroken string of hits. With the success of each film, Cameron's vision and ambition increased and so did his budgets. When it was released, The Terminator 2 Judgment Day was the most expensive film Hollywood had ever made. Cameron's next picture, True Lies, then became Hollywood's first $100 million production. Now consider the doomed ship. At the end of the 19th century, the British shipping company White Star Line was the leading operator of transatlantic voyages. But their main rivals, Cunard, had in the early years of the 20th century begun to encroach upon White Star Line's dominance. Cunard and White Star Line began making bigger and ever more expensive ocean liners. And with the launch of the Lusitania and the Mauritania, it was Cunard who had seized the prized blue ribboned for the fastest Atlantic crossing. So, when White Star Line announced that they were going to make the world's biggest ever vessel, all eyes were on the seemingly unsinkable ship. Likewise, when Cameron announced his next project, budgeted at a then mind-boggling $200 million, many in Hollywood wondered if it could ever earn back its investment. I lived in a small town, it was 2,000 people in Canada. Um, what finally attracted uh, me to film in such a definitive way was it was the only place I could reconcile the need to tell stories and to work in a visual art medium. My father was completely unsupportive in any way, shape, or form and was really sort of just sharpening his knives, waiting for me to fail so that he could say, aha, I was right, you should have gone into engineering. 
Um, and it was always this, this sort of attitude of, well, you know, one of these days you'll get a real job, this film thing, you know, will pass as a fad. And so there was zero support there. And I actually think that it, it, it made me angry enough that I had to succeed. Even before the budget was finalized, Cameron's project was fraught with logistical difficulties. It was bad enough that the film set, which needed a 90% scale replica of the doomed ship, would cost an estimated $15 million. The main problem was that there was no location big enough in the United States to house the set. 40 acres of Mexican land would have to be purchased with tanks large enough to contain 17 million gallons of water. And then an enormous hydraulic system would have to be built onto which the entire model ship would be fitted so that the luxury liner's final hours could be filmed and refilmed and filmed yet again until Cameron's exacting vision was satisfied. But rather than just recounting the events of the film's production, I want to look at how the film's near catastrophe and cyclopean success changed the way Hollywood approached its investment strategies. I said that the budget was $200 million, but studios are not always completely honest about such figures. So either way, whether Titanic came in at that price or even higher, it was at the time the most expensive picture ever made. Just as well then that it took in all the money it did because otherwise the studios who shoulder the costs, 20th Century Fox and Paramount Pictures would have taken very, very big baths. Mr. Dawson, I- Jack. Jack, I want to thank you for what you did. Not just for, for pulling me back, but for your discretion. You're welcome. Look, I know what you must be thinking. Poor little rich girl. What does she know about misery? No. No, it's not what I was thinking. What I was thinking was, what could have happened to this girl to make her think she had no way out? While there have always been expensive movies, each time a new barrier is breached, the financiers are always terrified that it might fail. I mean, during production, and indeed right up until they were released, David Oselznik's Gone with the Wind, C.B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, and William Wyler's Ben-Hur were considered fool's follies. But then, audiences come flocking, and the stress and brinkmanship is all but forgotten. Instead, the producer, or the director, is fated as a genius, a visionary, the only person who had the courage to not only withstand the enormous pressure, but to make real what no one else could. Which is precisely what happened when Cameron went to make his movie. Stories repeatedly leaked from the Titanic set about his tyrannical ways, the endless delays, and the enormous cost overruns. And when the film's initial release date was pushed back six months, cynics began circling like, well, sharks around a sinking ship. But miraculously, the ship didn't sink, and instead, Titanic sailed safely into port with over $1.2 billion in its cargo hold. By then, the film's budget and production problems had already been passed into the mists of time as a preamble to the emotional intensity that Cameron had delivered. So, when Titanic won 11 Oscars, 
with Cameron himself bagging three, and then declaring himself king of the world, no one at any of the studios doubted him. Rather than regarding Titanic as a movie that almost sank a studio, Hollywood viewed it as a new possible paradigm. Paying close attention to Titanic's success, the studios began to make fewer films, betting big on would-be blockbusters, operating under the assumption that large investments equal larger returns. It was the ship of dreams to everyone else. To me, it was a slave ship taking me back to America in chains. Outwardly, I was everything a well-brought-up girl should be. Inside, I was screaming. In 1997, when Titanic opened, 20th Century Fox released 12 feature films, and their budgets ranged from $19 million on the Jennifer Aniston rom-com Picture Perfect and $32 million on Home Alone Lost in New York to the $200 million Cameron spent on his film. Picture Perfect grossed in $44 million worldwide, which may appear to be a $25 million profit. But after the distribution and advertising costs, it's hard to accurately say how much it actually made. Home Alone made 350 worldwide, which makes it a very clear profit earner. But to quote Sean Parker in The Social Network. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? You? A billion dollars. All of which should explain very clearly why studios now put so much money into the likes of not just Iron Man, Captain America and Thor, but then double and triple down with the likes of the Avengers. Similarly, we are soon to have Batman vs Superman. These are $300 million investments, all but guaranteed to bring in close to a billion dollars and more. Movies that don't fit into that box are now increasingly hard to finance, which trickles not downward, but outward. Films outside that paradigm have to go to independent financing, but even those independent financiers have found that the studios have upped the stakes so much that almost everyone else is priced out of the game. Now, low-budget dramas are made by independents. Really? The Wolf of Wall Street was independently financed, and that cost $100 million. Let's look back to that date in April 1912, when a great ship set sail, filled with what seemed like unstoppable optimism and opportunity, only to become undone by arrogance and greed. It's precisely such hubris and profligacy that resulted in Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate not only bankrupting United Artists, but also bringing to an end the last great age of Hollywood filmmaking. Don't misunderstand me. Titanic is a terrific picture. Its characters may belong more in a pantomime, but when it comes to passion, they deliver because Cameron cares about them enough to pinpoint the emotional rivets and keep them securely fastened. But while Cameron was largely responsible for the film's success, he is in no way to blame for the studio's increasing conservatism and greed. All of which may beg the question, is an equivalent box office disaster looming just beyond the horizon?